Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Would you turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 21. We welcome you here this morning. Uh, Welcome those who are outside. We can't see you, but by faith we can. We know you're out there in the amphitheater. John chapter 21, and this week we say farewell, not to me, but to John. Me, uh, sort of like the poor you have with you always, but John, we've been with John for two and a half years, Um, October 24th, 2009, we began in John chapter 1, verse 1. And today we finish off the last section of this gospel, beginning in chapter 20. What a wonderful journey it has been. Very rewarding for me personally. Why don't we pray before we begin? Father, we're your people. You've called us. You have a plan, and it's a unique one. As unique as we are individually from one another, Though there are many similarities, yet there are many differences. And like fingerprints or snowflakes and a myriad of other examples, your plan for us is unique. But today we think of some common elements, elements that drive us together, elements that remind us we're all part of the same body following the same master. Thank you, Father, for what you've shown us in this series on the Gospel of John. His writings have awakened in us a deeper desire to know the Master himself. We have been able to, through his pen, step into his sandals and hear the words. It's as if we were there seeing the face feeling the very breath of the Savior speaking to these men and speaking through their words to us today. I pray, Father, that as we close this book, that it would be a fitting close. We would have our marching orders, our final instructions. In Jesus' name, amen. I got a note last week put on my desk from... One of our gals in the Sunday school department. Don't know how old Isabella is, but this is from her. It says, Skip, I have three dogs, one goat, one beta fish, and two hermit crabs. I love them so much. Please pray for them. <laughs> and so I did. Now, life doesn't get much simpler than that. It's just so simple. Little Isabella doesn't have a mortgage to worry about. She doesn't have to worry about running a business or raising kids. She just has a few very important pets that she loves and she wants prayer for. Very simple. Oh, that our lives were that simple. Now, they're not for a number of reasons. But perhaps part of the reason is we tend ourselves to complicate things. We go from simple to complex. We get involved in decisions and activities that, that just add more stress. There's one thing I have discovered about God is that He is pretty 
Simple. Straightforward. Here's ten commandments, he would say. Here's my top ten list. Now, we weren't satisfied with ten commandments. Do you know that the Jews decided to look at that differently and they made ten categories of commandments and say that there are 613 commandments. Not ten, six thirteen. 365 of which are negative, 248 of which are positive. We go from simple to complicated. We do it with what Jesus said. Probably the simplest prayer you'll ever find is what we call the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, holy, hallowed is your name, your kingdom come. Fifty-six words. It covers all of the major areas of life. It's so simple, it's so straightforward, yet it's so comprehensive. Fifty-six words. A simple prayer. Compare that to United States government document setting the price of cabbage, which is 26,911 words. From simple to complicated. Somebody once suggested that the Lord's Prayer would be very different if a theologian would have written it. In fact, if just the phrase, Give us this day our daily bread, were written by a theologian, it would sound like this. We respectfully petition, request, and entreat that due and adequate provision be made this day and the date hereinafter subscribed for the satisfying of these petitioners' nutritional requirements and for the organizing of such methods of allocation and distribution as many as may be deemed necessary and proper to assure the reception by and for said petitioners of such quantities of baked cereal products as shall, in the judgment of the aforementioned petitioners, constitute a sufficient supply thereof. I like give us this day our daily bread a whole lot better. Winston Churchill said all great things are simple. And so we come to the last paragraph, the final words of the Gospel of John, and the final words John records that Jesus said. And once again, we find that Jesus keeps it very simple. He takes Peter and he reinstates him. A wonderful conversation of taking a man who has fallen and denied him and resurrecting his hope and telling him of his future usefulness to him. But, but, Peter wants to complicate it. And Peter, it seems, wants to poke his nose in someone else's business. And so after breakfast, after Jesus has told Peter about his future, and given him the shepherding duty of his sheep, we come to verse 20 of chapter 21. Then Peter turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following. We know that to be now unmistakably John, who also had leaned on his breast at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, But Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, If I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Then Jesus went out. Then this saying went out among the brethren that this disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die. But if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? 
This is the disciple who testifies of these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. And there are also many other things that Jesus did, which, if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Amen. Now, that's good advice for Peter, and it happens to be great advice for us. And because it's the final paragraph, let's look at these as final instructions. Final instructions. Four final instructions as we leave the journey through the Gospel of John. Four final instructions as we march forward into the future, into our life. And we're going to view them this morning in terms of warnings. Things to be careful about. Things to be careful of. They're very simple. They're very practical. The Bible always is. First and foremost, be careful where you look. Be careful where you look. We're told in verse 20, Then Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following. And a description is given. Now let's just back up in the story. And let's just be reminded what's happening here. Jesus Christ has come to the Sea of Galilee early one morning when seven of the disciples are out in a boat casting their nets to fish. They don't know that the stranger on the shore is Jesus until the stranger shouts out, Hey, have you guys caught any fish? And they go, No. He says, Cast your nets on the other side. They do, and the net is full of fish. At that point, it is John, the author of this book, who says, that's the Lord. At that time, Peter gets up, puts his robe back on. He was just in shorts. Puts his robe back on, jumps off the boat into the lake, swims ashore to be with Jesus. At that time, there's a breakfast setting. There's a conversation with Peter, eye to eye, heart to heart. It's beautiful. But I do find it interesting, and I just want to suggest to you that perhaps... Perhaps there was a friendly, gentle competition between John and Peter. And I say that for a few reasons. Number one, John writes down for us. He records for everybody to read for years afterwards that it wasn't Peter who recognized the guy on the shore was Jesus. It was John. And he told Peter. And the reason Peter even launched out into the deep is because John said, that's the Lord. He writes that down. Also, if you go back a couple chapters in this same book, on Resurrection Sunday, there was a resurrection marathon between John and Peter. They both ran to the tomb. Remember that? John got there first and he wrote it down. So you would know, I, John, beat Peter in that race. Not only that, on the same day they're both looking into the tomb, John discovers that the empty grave clothes must mean a resurrection, and it says John believed, not Peter, and he wrote it down. All of those instances were recorded. Now we have here sort of the reverse of that, this time Peter saying, what about him? Looking at John. Also, let me just add something to the mix. Even before they were called as disciples, there must have been some competition because we read that Peter and Andrew together, the brothers, had a fishing business on the Sea of Galilee. 
so did John and James and his dad Zebedee. They had their own business. So they have been competitors in business for a long time. That may just be me, but let's just throw that into the mix. That these humans who love each other probably had been, even in a friendly manner, some rivals before. But look at verse 20. It says, Then Peter, turning around, saw the disciple. Okay, up to this point, Peter's eyes have been locked on Jesus. As Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? Then feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. It has been a wonderful time of fellowship, a wonderful time of connectedness that Peter has with Christ. But then, then Peter is distracted. And he must have seen John out of the corner of his eye or just thought about him and he turned and he noticed him. He got his eyes off Jesus and is looking at John. After all, Jesus just told him, Peter, his future. But he notices John. Now this is where our problems begin. Is when we get our eyes off of the Lord and on to other people or circumstances. As long as we're gazing heavenward, no problem. Everything is good. We get it. Life is in perspective. Once we glance earthward, it's all over. And so let's say you come to church one day and, boy, the worship music and the song choice really spoke to your heart. Those words resonate. And, boy, you're so close to the Lord. You're pouring out your heart to Him. The message was right from God's heart to your heart. You're applying it. And life is good. But then you go out to the parking lot and you get behind the wheel of your car and you see that long line of cars. And it's not the same. And then you pull out onto a sooner road or onto the freeway and that beat up old Ford cuts in front of you. And you see that. You turn and you're seeing that now. Or you go to the restaurant and you see the waiter totally neglect you. Or you go home and your kids are disrespectful to you, or your husband berates you, or you see that police officer pull you over on the road and give you a ticket. And it's different now. You're looking not at the Lord, you're looking around, and those circumstances get to you. You know, anytime you look around at this world, you can get pretty distressed. I don't know what your daily routine is, but a lot of you will grab a newspaper in the morning first off. Bad form. Why go to the bad news first? And I say bad news because is it ever good news? Do you ever read front page article? Man loves his wife for a lifetime. Never leave each other. They're always a, never read something good. It's always some scandal, some war, some horrible thing. So great. All the, everything's good in the world. Corey Tin Boom put it this way. Look around and be distressed. Look within and be depressed. Look to Jesus. Be at rest. The Bible in Hebrew says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. And Paul, or not Paul, but the writer of Hebrews, whoever that was, was talking about living the Christian life in such a way as you're running a race. Now, if you want to lose a race, you look around. Can you imagine trying to be on the track and make progress while you're looking at who's running next to you and looking behind to see who's coming behind you or looking up at the grandstands? You want to keep your focus. Back in 1961, Arnold Palmer 
was at the master's. He tells the story. He said that uh, he was ahead by one stroke. It was the last hole of the tournament. He had a great tee shot. He felt really good about the game. He walks out onto the fairway to make his second shot on the last hole. And he notices that in the gallery there's a man, an old friend of his that he recognizes, who motions to him to come over to the gallery. So Palmer did it. And he said, that's where I lost the game. The man put out his hand and said, congratulations. But Palmer said, I knew then that I had lost my focus. And the next few shots proved it. His second shot was over the green in the rough. And then he missed the putt and he lost the Masters because he lost his focus. We always lose when we lose our focus, spiritually speaking, and we get our eyes off the Lord. So be careful where you look. Number two, be careful what you consider. Verse 21, let's see what Peter considers. Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, But Lord... Okay, now just stop there. The Lord Jesus has just predicted to Peter that he's going to live a very fruitful life to old age and then be martyred in the end. And after Peter denying the Lord, this was good news to Peter. I'm going to be able all the way to the end to be faithful to the Lord. The ending doesn't sound all that good to me, but the Lord has made this prediction about me. Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, But Lord, what about this man? That is, what about John? Tell me about his future. You've told me about mine. What about this guy? And Jesus said to him, If I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Good old Peter. Peter loved the Lord, but Peter was still Peter. I have a friend who says, People change, but not that much. And Peter had his ups and downs, and he's coming along, but he keeps reverting back to Peterdom. Always being Peter, always saying those things, always wanting to do those things. So at some point in this glorious conversation, it's inevitable that Peter goes, Now, wait a minute, what about this guy? And his focus now is on John, and he's caring about and concerned for and careful over what's going to happen to John. Boy... How much like Peter are we? We're so prone to think about somebody else and want to run their lives. Want to meddle in their affairs. We want to manage what that father or that daughter or that pastor or that deacon does. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 10 concerning a group of people measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves, they are not wise. And we do that a lot, don't we? We compare ourselves with others. Oh, look what she's wearing. Well, look at that hairdo. Well, look what they're driving. Well, look where they live. Well, look how they look. Constantly comparing and worried about what they're doing rather than what we're doing. Now, it's interesting that Peter asked the question, what about this man? Jesus never answers him. He didn't say, okay, Peter, let me tell you what's going to happen to John now. He didn't even get there because it's none of his business. Now, you want to know what happened to John? 
You want to know what happened to this man who was so intimate and so close and seemed to Peter like he had it made? He's the guy who was so close and put his head on the chest of Jesus at the Last Supper. What happened to him is he was arrested. Irenaeus tells us, he's one of the church historians, Irenaeus was a disciple of Polycarp. Polycarp was a disciple of the Apostle John, so we're just one generation removed. Irenaeus said John was arrested, taken to Rome. They tried to kill him a few different ways, one of which was to boil him in oil, and according to the story, he didn't die. So they shipped him off to the island of Patmos, a prisoner colony, the worst place the Romans could think of to banish somebody. No vegetation, hard life, and they stuck him there. Now you think of that next time you're prone to look at somebody and compare yourself and say, how come they're so blessed and I suffer so much? Stop your private pity party. Because you have no idea what that person is facing or will face in terms of his or her own personal suffering. Think back to this. Verse 22 If I will that he remain till I come. In other words, if I wanted to live till the rapture, it's none of your beeswax. Don't concern yourself with John, Peter. You want to know a great text of scripture for this? A little short one. First Peter, or first Timothy chapter four, verse 16. Listen to it. Take heed to thyself. Take heed to yourself, or as the Phillips translation puts it, keep a critical eye on your own life. Some of us like to look around, there's Joe, he's not as committed as I am. There's Pete and Sally. They don't work as hard as I do. They do the glorious stuff. I do all the hard work around here. You get into that, it's hard to get out of that. I have a friend who gave me a link to a YouTube video of a pastor who got up on a Sunday morning, it was an Easter morning, to a packed congregation and just laid into them, berated them, calling them out name by name. Fred, you've been so unfaithful in your Sunday school class, you're fired, you're, you're a wretch. Calling people, I know what you're doing behind your husband's back, just, you, we've, you've talked about that, just calling everybody out and angry and mad and berating them. And I think the Lord wanted to slap them upside the head and say, Psst, what is that to you? You follow me. And I've learned something as a pastor, as a teacher, as a leader, that when it comes to Judgment Day, I face Jesus Christ. I'm not going to be responsible for how you did it. I'm going to be responsible for how I did it, as well as the words that I taught on how to do it. So... We shouldn't be so concerned. Disciple? Yes. Help? Yes. Bring along? Yes. But ultimately, it's their responsibility, not yours. A.W. Tozer has a wonderful illustration about a hundred pianos. He said, if you took a hundred pianos in one room and you tried to tune each piano to the other piano, they'll be grossly out of tune. If, however, you tune all 100 pianos to an outside source, a tuning fork, they will automatically be in tune with one another. He said it's the same with Christians. Get a hundred worshipers, have them all focus on Jesus, they're automatically in tune with each other. If, however, you bring them down to the level of, we need a unity conscious meeting, you're not going to do it. The key is just 
Focus on the Lord. Eyes on the Lord. Be concerned about the Lord's will for your life, not the Lord's concern and will for their life. I think I've told you about a woman who came into my office several years ago and wanted to know God's will for her life and who to marry. I said, well, I have no idea who you're to marry. She goes, well, there's this one guy I'm really interested in. I want to marry him. My friends think I shouldn't do it. So I told the Lord before coming in your office, whatever you say to me, that's what I'm going to do. You know what I said to her? Nothing. I said, you're not going to slap that on me. I'm not going to tell you who to marry. I'll tell you principles on how to discover God's will for your life. But then you, before the Lord, are responsible. So final instructions. Be careful where you look. Be careful what you consider. Number three, be careful who you follow. Be careful who you follow. Are you following people? Or are you following Christ? Jesus, verse 22, said, If I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. You follow me. You know, Peter didn't get the whole follow me thing very well, did he? Because Jesus already said this to him back in verse 19, right? I want you to be my apostle, Peter. You're going to shepherd my sheep. You're going to feed my lambs. You're going to be faithful until death to old age. You're going to be my apostle. But, but Peter, you know what? I also want you to just be my disciple. Follow me. He didn't quite get that because Jesus has to repeat it. And here when he repeats it, it's the emphatic you in Greek. The best translation would be, as for you, you follow me. You see, Peter got it slow, so Jesus said it slow. And he repeats it, and he emphasizes it so he won't miss it. Jesus never tells Peter to follow John. Never tells Peter to follow Andrew or James or Thomas. Not that anybody would. He says, follow me. And the Lord would say to you this morning, not follow my people. He never said that. Not follow my preachers, but follow me. That's what he would say to us. Whenever you follow people, you will get disappointed. Do you remember that Paul wrote a letter to the Corinthian church saying that each one of you says something like, I'm of Paul, or I'm of Apollos, or I'm of Cephas. They were identifying themselves with certain leaders, and I find that people still do that. Well, I really like that radio preacher, or that television, or that author. I've just, that's, I'm all about that. Really? How disappointing. You're going to be let down at some point. You need to put first and foremost following Christ. So, I love it. It's so simple, once again. If you were to boil the Christian life down to the irreducible minimum, the simplest axiom, it would be follow Christ. Right? That's pretty simple, isn't it? So, oh, the Christian life is so complicated. Really? Follow Christ. That's very simple. So my question for you this morning, in this final message is, are you following Christ? And be careful how you answer that. Because if you probe honestly, you may be forced to say, like we discovered last week, that Peter had to say, well, I sure like you a lot. My love isn't what it should be. And following you, uh, I want to do that. Are you following Christ? Now, I want to help you with that. 
I'm going to give you a little test. Three things that you can measure yourself by to see if you are truly following Christ. Because according to the Bible, it means three things. Number one, that you be where He is. If you follow Christ, you want to be where He is. Jesus said in John 12, 26, Whoever serves me will follow me, and where I am, my servant will be also. Now think about that. That means in all circumstances of life, all relationships of life, all decisions of life, if somebody ever says to you, why are you here? You can say, because I follow Christ and He led me here today. Can you say that? I tell you what, that would eliminate a lot of places that Christians go to and things that they do, because they can't confidently say, the Lord led me here. A lot of Christians go to places and do things and go, I hope the Lord still hangs with me after this. So number one, you be where He is. That's following Christ. Number two, you do what He does. You do what He does. You follow His example. This is John 13. Jesus said, I have given you an example that you should do as I have done. Jesus was faithful and obedient. Be faithful and obedient. He was patient. Be patient. He was honest. Be honest. He was holy. Be holy. He had these certain attitudes. Have those certain attitudes. You copy and emulate what He does. So it's pretty straightforward, and we don't have to guess what it means to follow Christ. You be where He is. You do what He does. And here's the third one. This is the hardest one. Suffer for His sake. I can just see this dead silence and contemplation. That third one. Suffer for His sake. Because this is the hardest of all. This is the nitty-gritty of discipleship. But listen to what Jesus said once again. Matthew 16, if anyone desires to follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. You know how many times I've heard that misinterpreted over the years? Uh, My cross, they say, is whatever problem I'm facing at the moment. Yes, this is my cross to bear. I have an ailment, or I'm married to this creep. It's my cross to bear. You have no clue then what it means to bear the cross. Because I'll guarantee you, when Jesus said those words to the Galileans, they knew exactly what it meant. They have seen people be crucified, and they knew that all victims of crucifixion carried the upper part, the patibulum, part of their cross to the place that they would be executed. In fact, history tells us that around this time, the Roman government had 2,000 Jewish Galileans crucified And they placed the crosses on the main arteries, the main roads in Galilee, so that all the populace would see that's what happens when you defy Rome. So when Christ said to them, if you want to follow me, you deny yourself. That is, dethrone you off of, take you off the throne, put Christ on the throne, take up your cross and follow me. They knew automatically he's speaking about death. That I have to be willing to die to my dreams, possibly, or my ambitions, perhaps, or my goals. And I have to say, I gave my life to Christ. I'm following Him. My life belongs to Him. And if that means I suffer for the cause of Christ, then I will follow Him. So the final instructions. Be careful where you look. Be careful what you consider. 
Be careful who you follow and ask yourself, am I following Christ? Fourth, finally, be careful how you wait. Look at verse 23 and we'll close off the book. Then this saying went out among the brethren that this disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die. But if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who testifies of these things and wrote these things. And we know that his testimony is true. And there are also many other things Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. I suppose that is true. Closes with that great refrain, Amen. I do find it interesting, enlightening, that John closes the book and records the last words of Jesus that John records are about his return and about waiting for his return. Now, it's based on a rumor. Rumor circulated that John wasn't going to die because Jesus said what he said. And so John focuses on the if and then the will. If it's my will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? That's what Jesus said. He wasn't giving a prophecy but a hypothetical statement. Here's what it shows me, that even God's people, that even the early church could misinterpret truth by not listening carefully or not reading what is written carefully. And John closes his book appealing to the reader to pay careful attention to what he wrote down by the Spirit of God. In effect, he is saying, Jesus came, lived, died, and rose, and I'm an eyewitness account, and I wrote it down. And also, he is coming again. He is going to return, and while we wait for him, we should stick carefully to what is written. So let's close with that admonition. As we are waiting for the Lord to return, and I don't know about you, but I tend to think it's a lot sooner than later based just on what I see going on in the world and what the Bible has predicted will happen. But while we're waiting for the Lord to return, be careful. Be careful not to cling to, to adhere to rumors, hearsay, the latest end times chart that you see in the bookstore, certain ones' predictions of when Jesus is going to show up, the latest book or the Mayan calendar. Don't stick to rumors. Stick to the study of what is written, the Word of God. Now just think about it. It's taken two and a half years to get through this book. You know what that means? You're going, yeah, I know what it means. You're really slow. (laughs) Oh, you're right. I want to explain why. The reason it has taken us two and a half years to get through John is because we have paused to dig and examine and compare text with context and historical data, background, syntax, etc., etc. And you know why? Because we wanted to be able to walk away from each studying saying, I know exactly what God meant when he said that. And you'll never know what 
The scripture means to you personally until you know what it said to them originally personally. And you'll never know what it said to them personally until you examine carefully and do what we have done, dig and study. We want to walk away not having any false ideas about what God said. And the only way we know how to do that is to faithfully, expositionally, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and book by book, go through the Bible. You know what Jesus said to the spiritual leaders of His day? He said, you do err, not knowing the Scriptures nor the power of God. And I would say to us, we will also err if we don't know the Scriptures. We won't know the power of God unless we know the Scriptures. I close with this poem of admonishment. I suppose I knew my Bible, reading piecemeal, hit and miss, now a bit of John or Matthew, now a snatch of Genesis, certain chapters of Isaiah, certain Psalms, the 23rd, the 12th of Romans, the 1st of Proverbs. Yes, I thought I knew the Word. But I found that thorough reading was a different thing to do. And the way was unfamiliar when I read the Bible through. You who like to play at Bible, dip and dabble here and there, just before you kneel aweary and yawn through a hurried prayer, you who treat the crown of writings as you treat no other book, just a paragraph disjointed, just a crude, impatient look, try a worthier procedure. Try a broad and steady view. You will kneel in very rapture when you read the Bible through. I want you to know something. This church was built on teaching the Scriptures. And by God's grace, it'll stay that way. Verse by verse, book by book. And with so many people and so many different ministry groups now very active on the campus, doing their own thing and their own emphasis, with all of that happening, one of the most unifying activities is that we all gather together going through the Bible. And we do that Wednesday nights. That's my favorite time to meet. Because on Wednesday nights, it allows us to go through not a couple verses, but large chunks of the Bible and see how it all fits together. It is one of the most unifying things because we're all focused on the same things. And it's like well-tuned pianos. That's the group I want to march forward with. Those who thoroughly know what God has said and lives are changed accordingly. Father, we close thanking you. Thank you, Lord, that you have been faithful in the last two and a half years as we have studied this book to bring some pretty important lessons. We've seen hundreds upon hundreds of people make commitments to Christ and to come to believe as the word is highlighted in the book. Thank you for so many changed lives. Thank you, Lord, that our scope of Jesus has been magnified. Our view of Him has been made greater. We see Him as John pictured Him, God in a human body, the one who claimed to be deity, the Savior of the world, the lover of our soul, 
Lord, as we close with these final instructions, I pray that you'd help us to be careful in how we treat spiritual truth. That this book is different from our math books or cooking books or sports magazines or newspapers. It is truth inerrant and preserved in book form. Our worship revolves around it. We take our cues for life from it. And we pray that we might be faithful as your spirit works in us in Jesus' name. And as John closed his book, we say, Amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.